Reclaiming Identity, sharing stories of struggle, pride, and redemption in reconnecting with our heritage. Hi, I'm Drora. And I'm Dahlia. And we're bringing you Reclaiming Identity as part of the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. Do you feel a part of the Jewish story? Is your family what pops up when people think of Jews? At Reclaiming Identity, we celebrate and explore the greater Jewish experience. We encourage you to tell your story and take pride in your heritage as it is a part of your identity. Listen to other people's stories, ask questions, be curious, and reclaim your identity. Today, we are privileged and honored to welcome Rabbi Albert Gabay, the rabbi of the Synagogue of the Revolution in Philadelphia. Interesting, it's also known as Spanish and Portuguese Synagogue and also Congregation Mikveh Yisrael. During our interview, we'll understand the significance of it having a specific name. He was born in Cairo, Egypt and spent his childhood there. In 1967, he was imprisoned in Cairo and was there for three years until he was finally able to leave, eventually making his way to the United States. He has helped the community in Philadelphia reconnect to their own heritage and to the greater Jewish narrative. He's a scholar and charismatic personality and an important friend of the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. Uh, I'm the rabbi of the congregation uh, uh, Migwe Israel. It's uh, a Spanish and Portuguese synagogue. It was founded in 1740 and uh, still maintain the same minhag as it has been in the beginning. It follows the same minhag as our mother congregation in Amsterdam, uh, also in London and uh, New York and Paris and Bordeaux and Bayonne, uh, the main uh, Spanish and Portuguese synagogues that are today functioning. I've been there for about 33 years. Uh, that's wow. where I lost most of my hair. <laughs> and thank God, it's a very lively congregation. Uh, we have people from every background, Ashkenazim, Sephardim, Temanim, Moroccan, uh, uh, Polish, uh, Italian, French, uh, oh, oh, every background in Philadelphia. And But we still maintain the Minhag and everybody that comes into the synagogue loves the Minhag. Very brief history. It's uh, It was founded 36 years before the revolution, the American revolution. And when the revolution came, Many of the members joined and fought in Washington's army, and like the others, either died or were wounded. And we became known as the synagogue of the American Revolution. And I want to point out that when you're on that, it, it's a walking right. distance from the Liberty Bell, for example. It's exactly right there. Right. <laughs> That's right. Half a block away. Yes. Half a block away. And as a matter of fact, the Liberty Bell, we believe that was brought by Nathan Levy from London to Philadelphia. So one of the founders of the synagogue is the one who brought it on a ship called the Mertilla. Wow. Myrtle in English, in Hebrew, Hadas. <coughs> Hadasim, right? Wow. <laughs> huge name to his, to his ship. Among the famous people, I'm going to mention one name, but uh, two names. Chaim uh, Salomon, who financed the revolution. And because of him having financed the revolution, we Jews in America are very proud that we have a direct participation in the founding of the United States of America. Another famous a person was Rebecca Gratz, the first woman, the, 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 the woman who, who founded the first Jewish school here in Philadelphia. So these two very famous names, there's so many other names I can mention, but I will, for lack of time, I will, uh, I will stop for these two, two people, famous people. Yes, the synagogue has a very rich history. And as you said, throughout the years, because you're talking about 
the 1700s till today, it's uh, definitely had a few evolutions. Uh, let's go back to your personal history. So I was born in Egypt. My father was born, Allah was born in Baghdad. My mother was born in Livorno uh, of Italian ancestry. Uh, and uh, the, the harbor of, uh, of Livorno is where many Portuguese Jews, when they escaped Portugal, Portugal, they ended up in Livorno. So maybe there is a connection here. I don't know. <laughs> in Egypt, there were Jews in Egypt, not Jews of Egypt. This means the majority of the people Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, maybe one or two or third generation at the most were in Egypt. Most of them came right after the Suez Canal opened in 1867 or 69, depending on which date you used. It attracted a lot of, of economical uh, opportunities. And many Jews came from the Ottoman Empire, from Turkey, from Eretz Israel, from Syria, Iraq, like my father, Rabbi Shalom. And many others came from Morocco, from Italy, from Austria, from France, from England, from uh, Russia also. They all came there and, 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 uh, and, and developed the country because of, of their uh, ability in, a, in the economical uh, field. And when they decided to build the new um, synagogue in 1901 in downtown Cairo, they had all, the, all these type of communities from different backgrounds. You had the Moroccan Jews, the Iraqi Jews, etc. They decided what, what mean hug are we gonna make so that everybody that comes to synagogue is, 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 is okay. So they went to both synagogue, the, the Spanish Portuguese synagogue in London, in Belsmart, and the Portuguese synagogue in Paris, Rue Before, and they took all the melodies and brought them to our synagogue. Really? So melodies, more or less. Wow, I did not realize that. This way, nobody gonna fight and gonna say, no, I want my melodies or his melodies. There was a number of Jews, of course, who existed before the the immigrant came. There was a tiny number of Jews who can trace their ancestry back to the time of Maimonides. And these uh, these were mostly in the Jewish quarter. It was called Harat al-Yahud, the the street of the Jews. And... uh, and these mostly were, were poor people, and <clears throat> they had different minagim, but they had different synagogue in the same Jewish quarter. When uh, Jews went up the social ladder, then they moved out of that place and went to downtown Cairo. And therefore, they needed a, a real good synagogue that is equivalent to any of the big synagogues in Europe. They had two major synagogues, one in Cairo called Char Shamaim, the same name as the synagogue of London, and the other in Alexandria, the synagogue Eliyahu Hanabi. To this day, you can go there, monumental synagogue, absolutely very imposing, very beautiful. Thank God they're still up. The others are, there may be 54 or 55 other synagogues at the peak of the uh, Jewish population, and but most of them are closed or dilapidated or unkept, who knows what. Well, the Ben Ezra Synagogue had that big opening a few weeks, a few years ago. That's true. true. (laughs) But do you remember actually being in the synagogue? Do you remember growing up there? Any interesting memories? I grew up in that synagogue, right, which is because it was half a block away from where we we lived. Not only we were regular in the synagogue, but we were also member of the choir. We used to call them the Mezamerim. Mm -hmm. My family is. uh, We had ten siblings. Most of us. We had eight boys and two girls. All the eight boys were either Hazanim or member of the choir. 
And therefore, we knew the melodies, we knew the, the prayers, we knew all these things. So today, if I were to, to ask, to, if they were to tell me, would you go to Egypt? I would say, absolutely not. I would say only one request. If you can take me from the air and drop me into the synagogue, that's the only place I want to see. Otherwise, I don't want to go there at all. Well, we're going to get into that in a few minutes. I do want to touch upon that. But before that, I want to ask, you said there, you have two sisters. Were they also educated in the melodies? Yes. Yeah, because we are, we are an observant family. So being observant, and, and, and of course, they, they participated in the prayers and everything that, you know, in, in, at home, Pashu, Shabbat, everything was part of, part of our lives. So they were part of it. They were not <clears throat> they were not part of the choir because it's only the boys in the choir. But we were jealous because in, in Alexandria, they had a choir and they included girls under the age of 12. So we were jealous. Yeah, we were jealous. Really? <laughs> When you went to school, you went to school in Cairo, you all went to school, what language was instruction or was it a Jewish school? Yeah, okay. So here's a story we have to know, first of all, a little bit of history, and that until 1948, life for the Jews was absolutely marvelous. People were very well off. Uh, they were very highly educated, cultured. Uh, there was, for instance, uh, uh, La Comédie Française who came to Egypt uh, because people spoke French and they loved French literature. La Scala Opera of, of Milano came also to Egypt. There was a very advanced situation until World War II and around uh, 1948, there was around 100,000 Jews. And so what happened is that after the war, maybe 50% of them left. This means that until 1956, until 1956, there were, were uh, still the culture was very high and there were French schools, English schools and Italian schools. And the Jews sent their children to either of these three types of schools. And because the Jews in Egypt associated with the Europeans, therefore they spoke French because that was the lingua franca mm -hmm. among all the Europeans. They all spoke French. Some knew also English, some knew Italian, some from Greek, whatever it is. And of course, most of the people knew four or five languages. And uh, at home, you spoke French. Yes, because everything was French, French culture, everything in every aspect was French. So we went to a French school, Lycée Français, and after that, when after 1956, when Nasser uh, nationalized the Suez Canal and the and the war uh, in Sinai took place in 1956, then he expelled all the French and British citizens, of which at least half the Jewish population was uh, was uh, citizens, so they were expelled. He closed the French schools and the English schools and made them Arabic schools, but still teaching in French, but the Arabic cur curriculum, the government curriculum. So we went to the schools and we went to the French schools. I went to the Catholic Brotherhood French, Les Frères Catholiques. Collège des Frères, because that was our culture, number one. Number two, we wouldn't dare send any children, uh, any Jewish children to an Arab uh, school. It's not our culture, it's not our, our standing. So, so did you speak <clears throat> Arabic at all? Did you? Well, at, in the last years, they forced us to learn Arabic. Oh, so you grew so up not was... speaking Arabic at all? No, but we picked up Arabic from the school, from, sorry, from the streets, from the, you know, thing like that, of course, yes. But again, literal Arabic and all these uh, things, it's only when it, it will become obligatory in the curriculum to learn that. Your father spoke French from Iraq. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so now we're into 1956, getting a little later. Most of the Jews have left at this point, right? About 75%, yeah. Yeah. let's say. And you're still there. Is there, uh, your whole family stayed? Our father of blessed memory passed away, right? When we were children. Our mother became a widow with 10 children in her hands and had to take care of all of them. Not easy, but she did manage as much as she could. And of course, since most of the Jews were starting to leave Egypt, and it was not easy to leave Egypt. The government wanted us out, but he made our life miserable by delaying our going out. So a lot, a lot, a lot of red tape to get out. We also were about to leave also. Okay. So what happened, uh, we started by sending uh, out of the uh, 10 children, four of them were able to, to get out and they went to America and they became citizens. And um, <clears throat> in the meantime, we were also planning to, to leave and to join them. And um, then that's when the Six Day War started. At that time, there was maybe left uh, maybe a thousand Jews at the most in all of Egypt. From a hundred thousand or, or more or less, some say 80,000, whatever the figure is. Yeah. So, okay. So you didn't want to stay. You were forced to stay. There was no way to get out. No, no, we, no, we, were, we, were, we prepared everything. Our, our suitcase was almost, almost filled. Wow. But only the red tape. Because the red tape, you know, you, you know I'll, I'll give you an example of red tape. You go to that uh, government uh, office and you wait online for maybe half a day until it comes your turn and say, okay, show me your birthday certificate. Oh, very good, very good. Oh, you didn't bring it with you the marriage certificate? Come back in three weeks, four weeks, and come again, again online. And come again. Oh, you brought it. You didn't bring me the other certificate, the one that was school. No, you have to bring it. <laughs> wow. I can just give you an example yeah. of craziness, craziness. I'll tell you honestly, in the beginning, I was not, I did not talk about it because I didn't want to uh, appear as a victim. But I want to, but today I'm saying I must say that to the whole world to know the facts, to know the history, that we are always on our guards because anti Semitism didn't end with the Holocaust, it continues to this day. I am a generation of today that uh, experienced it. When the Six Day War uh, started in 1967, I was in high school, and uh, what they did is they rounded up all, most of the boys and 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 the girl, and the and the men. They didn't touch the women, thank God. And they came to wherever we were in school, in business, in uh, streets, in um, you name it, wherever we were. They knew exactly where the Jews are. Of course, they had the the, the whole intelligence service working for them. They knew exactly where to go, and they picked them up, and they came with a submachine gun and say, you follow me. Just five minutes, just five minutes. There's five minutes, lasted three years. Yeah, there is a book also, one of the people who were in the prison camps wrote a book, said the longest five days in, of, of his life. He wrote it in Hebrew because he's in Israel. And, so. Ovadia, is that Ovadia Yerushalmi? Yes, yeah, that's right. That's I right. have his book, actually. He wants to translate it to English, too. Did you know hey, him okay. there? Yeah, he's here. No, did you know him there? Yeah, of course, he was with us. Yeah, man, man. really. Yeah, we were placed in five cells. Each cell would contain seventy Jews. It was seventy. We were sleeping head to toe, head to toe, head to toe, etc. And so we knew each other very well. And that's how I know everybody that was there. Wow. Um, the first camp, prison camp, was was horrible, and uh, it was called Abu Zabal. And we were there for about six months or so, and they mistreated us very badly and then we were transferred to another prison camp called Tura. 
Tura is also the same prison camp where the President Mubarak was interned by the by the Muslim oh, Brotherhood. Yeah. They were one hour, one year in in power. Yeah, in the, the first prison camp, they uh, I'm I'm going to spare you the detail, but I'm going to tell you one one of them is they of course they beat us all the time, but there is an Arabic proverb that says you cannot control, you cannot you beat the the donkey to move and the donkey is stubborn it doesn't move so you take your anger on the saddle so whenever there were uh, skirmishes across the Suez canal between the israeli army and ah. the egyptian one and they got a beating so they beat us and we told them you couldn't get on the on the, on the donkey so you, you take your rage on the saddle wow. right? I, wanna, I wanna ask there was food there you were able to or your mother has to bring you food or no the first six months our mother didn't know where we were. The food they gave us was horrible food. It was uh, rice in a bucket. On the surface was the sand, and underneath was the rice. And then the, the bread was a horrible bread, um, because you see the camp had also, uh, it was surrounded by the regular, the, the criminals were in prison. So they gave the function of the, to the criminals to bake the bread for us. And therefore, the bread that we received, you could eat it if you wanted, provided you were able to remove the cigarette butts from it. They knew they were making it for Jews. Uh, then either they, no, they, they made for everything, but they, you know, what do you expect? A third world country which doesn't know anything about hygiene, about the thing, or, it's uh, casual, you know, it's, you know, it's a big deal, you know? So whether it is for the Jews or not, it, I don't know, it's, it's hard to tell. So uh, some people, some Jews who did not observe kashrut ate the camel meat that came once a week or something like that. We, of course, didn't touch it at all. And uh, So you're basically starving. Was... You're barely eating anything. Then they allowed us to go from the canteen and buy some some yogurt, some a few things like that that we could survive on. After that, we went to the other camp. And the other camp, now, now they told our mother, yes, they are in the other camp, and you can send food there so she brought us kasher food how many of you were there how many of your siblings so four had already uh, right. went out of egypt so we left with four four other we were four brothers all four of you were in prison together yes but we in a way we were lucky i'll tell you why because they allowed the family only once a month to visit right since we were four that allowed our mother to come every week because she's visiting visiting one one prison wow so, that, so. That's some, I guess there's some silver lining there. I don't know. Exactly right. Exactly right. Exactly right. And the beatings continued in the second one? Uh, it was uh, less. It was less, but it was not. Uh, okay. And that's where you stayed for the next two and a half years? That's correct. Okay. So what happened that you got out? Okay. When we went out, we didn't know what was behind the scenes. We were not allowed to have any, of course, any communication with the outside world, but they blasted the radio, Arabic news and Arabic music and all this thing that couldn't stand. But you, um, we heard, and, and also they allowed also the Egyptian newspaper. And one day we saw in the newspaper that there has been a small, a small article, very small, exchange of prisoners between Israel and Egypt as a fait accompli, it, there was already an exchange of prisoners. 5,200 or so high officers of the Egyptian army in exchange for four or five Israeli soldiers or something like that. Wow. When we read that, we were very depressed. 
because we thought that maybe Israel is going to ask for us to be exchanged also, and we were not included. So pessimism fell on us, and we said to ourselves, when are we going to get out of that hole? Maybe when there will be peace in the Middle East. So... <laughs> Okay, that would have been a long wait, yes. <laughs> but obviously you didn't wait for that. <laughs> well, thank God. But uh, as you know, Jews are always optimistic and we were saying, no, there'll be another way. And um, we, um, after we left, we found out exactly what happened. To, to a large extent, is that every time the foreign press was asking Gamal of the Nasser, what do you do with the Jews that you have in the concentration camp? And he went, he will make up all kind of stories. Oh, they are Zionists. Oh, they are uh, spies. Oh, they are going to be a judge. All kind of nonsense. But embarrassing. You know what to answer? He wanted to get rid of, the, of that problem. He didn't know how to. Because if he let the Jews out, at that time, the Iraqis and the Syrians would say, Nasser, you are a traitor. How can you let Jews out? So the, the, there was the, they needed to find a an about face to save the face. I'm sorry, not save face. Yeah, face. Yes, save face. So what, what to do? A, a Spanish ambassador in Egypt went to Nasser and said to him, "The Jews that you have in the concentration camp are not whatever you want to call them, Egyptian, stateless, you name it, whatever they are. They are not. They are Spanish citizens." We expelled them from Spain in 1492. We are willing to give them a Spanish passport and they leave Egypt as foreign subjects. And therefore, you can say to anybody, I cannot control these are foreign subjects. It's not in my hands. And that was before this whole thing of the new citizenship. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Exactly right. And so they gave a Spanish passport valid for two years, non-renewable. Just right. to get out. Just, the French did the same thing, and that's I got the French one. The French did the same thing. The French gave us a laissez-passer, and then we were able to get out. When this happens, our mother went to Italian uh, cons- uh, embassy and said, tra- uh, transfer my citizenship to my children mm-hmm. so they can also get out. And guess what the stupid answer was? Madam, in these instances, it's very sensitive. It's very difficult. We cannot do that right at this moment. If they were out prison, maybe we would have done it. And she said to them, if it was not that case, why would I have come to you? Right. <laughs> That's what I need you now. They didn't. And they didn't help at all, even though she was no, Italian, no. actually. <laughs> yeah. Because there was a technicality. She she did not register her marriage in in the Italian consulate. So they found so, a loophole. Got it. Yeah, loophole. Right? Uh, in any case, so they were, we were taken from the prison camps into the trucks that takes us to airport and from the, the trucks into the plane. Then, only then, did they remove the handcuff in the plane. What did they think and you they were going to do? They didn't want us to go to our home to pick up our, our shirt or underwear. Nothing. Uh, Zero. And we, um, as a joke, on, on the plane, the flight attendants, a woman, say, oh, that, that's, that, that's, that's a woman we haven't seen for three years. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so from extreme confinement to extreme f- freedom in Paris, one of our brothers who was in uh, one of the four that were left already, our brother, he lived in Paris. He welcomed us. In, and then uh, we waited for about a year or so for our visa to the United States. We came here as legal refugees. So how many of and you came together? Here's the story. Psychologically, when you accuse somebody innocently of a crime and he had never committed the crime, he will come out and he will think that he is a criminal. The accused of being Zionists, he came out super Zionists. 
<laughs> we said, well, you've got to go to Israel. And so I'm, I'm going to tell you some personal uh, behind the scenes discussion. Our brothers who were in America spoke to us in French and told us, uh, because we want to go to Israel. It's, it's good that you want to go to Israel. However, you, you, you have no money. And why don't you come first to America? You mix you get a profession, you get some money, and you can go to Israel after that. Because if you go to Israel, you won't be allowed, you won't have the money to take, take even a, 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 a ticket for a flight. And we want to reunite the family. And so we said, so two of them, two of us said, okay. And two of them said, no, we're going to Israel. And so two of my brother went to Israel. They served in the army. They went to Tachnion, they went there, and things like that. And then they came to America and life continues, right? Oh, then and they came to America after... They, they came to America and then went back to Israel also. Oh, okay. Yeah. But you went straight to America. I went straight to America. Of course, I visited Israel very often. As a matter of fact, since I've been the rabbi, maybe three or four times a year, I would go to Israel. Wow. Because Except for this last year and a half. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's one benefit, right? You came to America and you hadn't finished high school because they took you in the middle of high school. That's true. So uh, I was in my last year of high school. So what I did is I started working because I came with $20 in my pocket in America. Thank God that my brother put me up for um, a month or so. And I worked and uh, my first salary was $85 a week. Not bad at all for somebody who has only $20. Yeah, <laughs> it was very nice. After uh, a year or two, I said to myself, "That's not my future. Uh, I've got to um, to get an education." So I went to Yeshiva University, and I got uh, loans, grants, uh, work, study, everything that I need, and worked very hard and uh, finished college. Then went to Columbia University Graduate School of Public Health and uh, for the master's degree. And I, I got a job at different pharmaceutical companies. And um, then New York, they needed somebody to help them with the Hazanut. And so I went there. And after that, I got a call from Philadelphia. Would you join us? So I'll try. And I was there during weekends. And I said to myself, since I've finished almost the whole semicha, why not get the semicha itself? exam and so I went to Israel to the Rabbi Kassin Sephardi and finished the semifinal very quickly and took the exam and they were okay and they told me the Israel you have the job you are the rabbi of the congregation. So let's take it a minute. You studied first in Yeshiva University, and that's where you started the Smifa path. And you said there, I'm going to go back to what you said on November 30th, that you felt very much a part of everybody. It sounds like it almost was like uh, back in Cairo, where you had all the people from all different backgrounds coming together. Tell me if I'm wrong. That's right, that's right. Because you said there was a Sephardi community there as well. And everybody mixed together. Exactly right. And, but then okay. you decided to go do a pure smicha, a Sephardi smicha in Israel with Rav Kassim. That's correct. Okay. What, what made you decide not to finish it at YU? <laughs> Why not have a semicha that is Sephardi semicha as opposed to Ashkenazi semicha? So you felt that you still wanted to have that connection? Yes, of course. What happened is at, at Yeshiva University, there was a Sephardi studies program for, for the Sephardi students. And Hagam Gaon, Allah was, was the head of that. He was the chief rabbi of the British Empire. 
Uh, and then, and then he, when he retired, he came to New York and went to Yeshiva University and headed that the Sephardi study programs right. in the seventies. And then, um, and I was a student there. I said, you know, instead of going through more uh, exams at the Yeshiva University, why not take the exams with the chief rabbinate in in Israel, Acham Mordechai Eliyahu at that time. That makes sense. And so now we talk a lot about in America, it's a very Ashkenormative society, particularly in the school systems. And yet you have a very strong Sephardi presence. Are the schools in Philadelphia also reflective of that presence? You know, as you know, uh, like you just said, it a lot of uh, Ashkenazi influence everywhere. And uh, the difference is also this. Sometimes I say, okay, we're going to have a Sephardi minyan for the Sephardi students, right, in the Ashkenazi schools. That's basically what what they have as far as Sephardi culture. Uh, from time to time, they, they ask me to come and, and explain some Sephardi aspects of, of halakha. But uh, on, on the other hand, the children that come to our synagogue, we try to teach them the Sephardi uh, halakha, wedding in Agim. So they are aware of both. And therefore, when they grow up, they know what to do. Right. And you're talking about the history of Jewry in America. I mean, this, this is where it was. This is, okay, also New Amsterdam, New York. But th- this is the Revolutionary War, like you said. And this is the Sephardi presence. This, this is the Jewish presence. This is the greater exactly. Jewish narrative. Do you ever get a little frustrated with that? <laughs> of course. But the first, the, the, the people who don't know the American Jewish history, they should know that the first wave of Jews who came to America were the Sephardim, yeah. right? Through Amsterdam, London, and then they came to here, to New York and Philadelphia, The first one, of course, were from Recife, Brazil, to New Amsterdam, etc. So all six synagogues at the time of George Washington were all Spanish Portuguese synagogues. And if that's you huge, were, I don't think people understand that. This is what we're talking about. This is Jewish America is Sephardi from the start. I just have to say that again. Sorry. You can continue. That's true. true. So if you were a German Jew, a German Jew or or a Polish Jew or whatever Jew you are, there was only one synagogue in town and that was the Sephardic synagogue. And and you followed the the tradition there. And and the joke doesn't apply because you cannot say that synagogue will step foot over there. (laughs) They mistreated us. You didn't have a choice. You didn't have a choice, right. So, and uh, after that, the second wave of immigrants were German Jews in about the 1840s, 1850s. And at the end came mass immigration of Ashkenazi Jews from Poland and Russia between 1880 and 1920. And that's the majority of the, of the Jews in America come from that, from that wave right. of immigration between 1880 and 1920. But when these people came, the foundation of Judaism in America was already established by the Sephardim. Exactly. <laughs> the Society for the Poor, the Society for the, the Mikvaot, the Shechita, the Rabbi, the synagogues, all that was established. And then they built on it. They right. made it, of course, made it flourishing very much so. But the foundation came, came from here. A few examples, for instance, um, in, in, in Eastern Europe, synagogue did not have a name. Usually, in many places, they would call them by the synagogue of the street. Like in Paris, uh, uh, Rue Before Synagogue, or in, in London, Bevis Mark Synagogue. Right. The name of synagogue is Shar Shamayim, but it's known by the street where it is. As, 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 as a funny thing, in New Zealand, there is a synagogue, and it's called Christ Church Synagogue, because yeah. it's on Christ Street. Street. <laughs> when the Ashkenazi Jews came to America, they saw that uh, Sephardim give to their synagogue Hebrew names. This is called Mikveh Israel, Shirit Israel, 
ישועת ישראל, בית אלוהים, etc. They said, oh, then we should also give Hebrew name to our synagogues. And that's how it started. It should be a Sparta normative. It doesn't sound right. But that's what it should be. It doesn't make sense. But, um, it was going to happen, by the way. Rabbi Isaac Lister from our synagogue said exactly, if there is a Polish minhag, and there is a Russian minhag, and there is a German minhag, there should be an American minhag, and that is a Spanish-Portuguese minhag. But it, was, it just came at the time when the mass immigration came, that overwhelmed everything, and that's it. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's what makes I think that should be, we need to post that somewhere. We need to show that off. So let, let's go a little bit more to where we are. So you were always open and proud of your heritage, and especially, like you said, the Spanish-Portuguese, even though it's not necessarily your parents' heritage, but you claimed it as your own and you continue to. In your synagogue, you say that you train the students also in the Spanish-Portuguese, or you help them to find within their own, because you said you have Iraqis and Moroccans and Yemenites. Do they have their own traditions, or they all do by the Spanish-Portuguese? All, Spanish, all according to Israel, the Spanish-Portuguese tradition. Yeah. So it's very so important, right. We have to transmit that. We have a very important mission, and that is that we are going, we are going to keep as much as we can of the minhag of the synagogue because the constitution of synagogue requires it. And but, but also we love it and we want people to know it and to, to observe it. Yeah. And that's very unique because in other synagogues, they kind of let correct. it go a little bit. Yes. That's right. But, but here's, the, here's the, the thing is that the, the minhagim that are in the Spanish Portuguese tradition are based on halakha. They're not based on whims. It has also, it's very attractive, and it has also a spirit of tolerance, of accepting, like in the classical Sephardi world, classical Sephardi, not, not the, the, the ultra-Orthodox Haredi Sephardi that is new movement that occurred only the, the last 40 years or so. Which if you ask but me, is influenced by the Ashkenazim also, but... <laughs> that's right, that's true. So the, the real classical Sephardi has only been open-minded while still maintaining the, the halakha very much. So that has been our spirit. We try not to be judgmental, we try, but we try to encourage people to observe the Torah, to observe the halakha, to the kashrut, Shabbat, everything, but we are not judgmental. There is only one shofet, and that's a Kudaz Baruch And by the way, he's also the shofet, the shoter. He's also the policeman, so. Right, and we should be policing each other. And I, I would say that's most of the Sephardi traditions, not only Spanish, Portuguese. I, I feel like that's yes, also right. North African as well. It's yes, more of a... Absolutely. Welcome. That's why I said classical Sephardi. Classical Sephardi includes includes everything, all the Sephardim, except the last 40 years or so. If there's one thing you want us to know out of all this about identity and uh, heritage, what would you want to put out there to everyone? The most important part is to learn and practice your heritage. You cannot practice your heritage if you don't know it. You must learn your heritage. Go to rabbis who are capable of teaching you, go to classes, go ask your, your parents, your grandparents, and your great-grandparents if you can, and get that heritage and transmit it. Practice it because the children are going to look at you and they're going to say to themselves, if he does that, great. If he does something different, why should I do it? It's very important to set the example. Again, generally speaking, the biggest enemy of Judaism is ignorance. And therefore, knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. Rambam says in the first thing on his Mishneh Torah, Da, we have a mitzvah to know God, not to believe in God. Anybody is telling you believe in God is nonsense because if I tell you be happy today, boom, be sad 
an emotional thing you cannot control, but knowledge, yes. Da, know God. So we have to really know. How do you know God? By studying the Torah, by studying everything that God has created on this earth. Everything, biology, science, uh, weather, uh, you name it. Any science on this earth. He says it very clearly in the Moreni Bukhim. He said to know, to, to study Torah, you have to know anatomy, mathematics, physics, philosophy, astronomy. You have to know all these things. You cannot uh, live in a world where only the text, uh, is not only the text, and you don't know exactly what, what, what God has created around you. That's very important. That's huge. And I think that's a wonderful uh, last thing. And I think that's very much in the Sparty heritage. So yeah. thank yeah. you. Thank you for listening. Reclaiming Identity is produced and edited by Moshe Singer and executive produced by Dalia Arusi and Drora Arusi. Our theme music is by Vanessa Paloma. Be sure to check her out on Spotify. Be a part of the reclamation. Subscribe to the Reclaiming Identity podcast on our website, instituteofjewishexperience.org on our Facebook page, Spotify, or Apple Music. Follow our programs on our website and the Institute of Jewish Experience channel on YouTube. And please help support these and other ASF Institute of Jewish Experience efforts by donating today.